0: Hello and welcome to the Center for Independent Studies. I'm Salvatore Bobonis and tonight I'll be asking, does Hong Kong have a future? Joining me tonight are two business people who have their fingers in the pulse of Asia, Simon Littlewood of management consultancy ACG Global and Daniel Del Rey of strategic communications firm, Kext CNC. Based in Singapore, Simon Littlewood is an author, advisor and broadcaster who has spent three decades helping Western companies navigate the minefield that is doing business in China. He's a regular commentator for the BBC's Business Matters program, and his consulting practice focuses on opportunity and growth, cost-trimming, and working capital. Based in Hong Kong, Daniel Delray is a corporate communications professional with Keck CNC and heads the firm's Hong Kong office. He's a specialist in financial and crisis communication, advising companies on a range of issues, including transactions, restructurings, capital markets events, and employee and stakeholder engagement. Both offer us a peek inside the real-world challenges facing Hong Kong and its business community today. Is China's new security law the straw that will break Hong Kong's back? Will Hong Kong survive as a global business center when vague crimes like colluding with foreign forces are now punishable with life imprisonment? Can Hong Kong's business community navigate between the scylla of extradition to China and the charybdis that is the long arm of US sanctions? And if businesses do flee Hong Kong, where will they go? (laughs) As the federal government's Global Business and Talent Attraction Task Force seeks to attract key businesses and global super talents to Australia, in the words of Population Minister Alan Tudge, will be asking Simon and Daniel whether Hong Kong businesses will even consider relocating to Australia. Daniel, Simon, welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight at the Centre for Independent Studies. Thank you, Salvatore. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's a great pleasure to, to be here and it's a great pleasure to meet you, Daniel. (laughs)
0: The pleasure is all ours. Daniel, you're on the ground there in Hong Kong advising clients on how to handle corporate communications when, in theory, even one errant tweet can see someone imprisoned for sedition. What are you telling your clients about how to handle that situation? Well, Salvatore, let me start off by providing a very direct
2: answer to the question, does Hong Kong have a future? I think that it does. I think we are seeing that the uh, certainly the, the business community here is becoming somewhat more comfortable with conditions on, on the ground. In terms of what I'm telling clients, certainly at, at the outset, when the national security law was first implemented, we were saying, look, you, you uh, needn't become overly concerned, but don't do anything that would make you the test case for how this law is implemented. Uh, Be very careful, of course, in in what you are, are saying publicly, be very careful, of course, in what you are saying privately. Uh, within you your offices, but certainly you don't want to be the, the first person to, to put this law to the test to see whether the whether and how the courts are going to adjudicate issues on this matter or the uh, policy offices that the PRC has here in Hong Kong. Uh, however, it's been several months since the law has gone into implementation, and what we've seen is that uh, there, there has not been the uh, I would say, at least within the business community, uh, the draconian level of enforcement that one could have feared had they taken their fears mm-hmm. to the, the, the uh, illogical extreme. Um, I, I think the clear and expressed purpose of the, the law was to quell unrest, and um, regardless of your view on the law, um, it, it seems to have had that effect. Uh, and I think. Uh, it it has created a clear space within which the business community can continue to
0: operate. Right. Right. I mean, Simon, you run a consultancy that helps clients manage their cash flows in China. Now, I'm assuming Hong Kong is a big hub for that. How does the new security law affect those kinds of operations?
1: Well, um, Hong Kong is and isn't a big hub because it used to be true 20 or 30 years ago that if you wanted to have smooth cash flow with business in China Hong Kong enjoyed a special status and by setting up in Hong Kong you could move money in and out of China much more easily than you could say if you were in Singapore or other parts of the world that ceased to be the case quite a long time ago Um, Hong Kong does not have a special status from that perspective you're in effect having to obey the same laws uh, which has led of course to many many businesses now having a presence on the ground in China which is perfectly logical I completely agree with Daniel Uh, Hong Kong does have a future, it just has a very different one.
0: <laughs> what is that different future? I mean, let me push you on that. And Simon, let me ask you first, what is that new future for Hong Kong? And then we'll get Daniel to answer the same question.
1: I was, as you know, I'm a historian. So, you know, the 147 years of uh, colonial Hong Kong is but a drop in the ocean for a classicist like myself. But <laughs> if you like, uh, Hong Kong used to be um, a route into China when London was the world's biggest financial center. Now... Hong Kong is going to be a route in the world, into the world from China and is going mm-hmm. to be China's biggest financial center. So it's, it's a complete and very, inter- very interesting inversion. But there's no way that the Chinese are not going to take advantage. You know, there's a positive way to look at the pressures that they're putting in Hong Kong, which is they're trying to turn it into a stable financial center because they recognize the unique expertise that sits there that does not sit in any other Chinese city. They want to make sure that they can use that to raise capital, to do business with the outside world, but they don't want the place burning down every five minutes. So that's what's behind what's going on at the moment. It's positive in terms of Hong Kong's long longer-term growth trajectory. Yeah?
0: Well, now, I know you're not saying it's positive for human rights. You're saying it's positive for the growth trajectory. Daniel, what do you think? I mean, is it positive for the economy in Hong Kong?
2: Well, I think the... The historical strengths of Hong Kong continue to to be very very strong, very very competitive. Uh, I don't think anything has happened that uh, poses an, an existential threat to to those strengths. Uh, certainly, this continues to be a, a hub um, for business activity because of the the legal system here that is very familiar. It's the based on the uh, British common law uh, system. Um, and it certainly has the financial infrastructure that is very difficult to replicate elsewhere in Asia especially if you want access to, to mainland China uh, if you you're asking me what's the um, what, what, what the, the future will be what the future looks like uh, it does look like it's uh, it, it's becoming far more integrated with with mainland China from a, a financial a commercial perspective i mean what we have seen here and and i I may be overly focused on the financial markets just by by dint of my my profession but we have seen a uh, certainly no shortage of uh, initial public offerings on the hong kong stock exchange um they are uh, i I, um, believe they are almost entirely from uh, mainland china uh, but they are companies with uh, significant valuations. We have seen some of uh, the Chinese tech darlings, some very large companies with multi-billion dollar market caps uh, and listings in the United States, either um, seek a secondary listing here or flirt with um, making Hong Kong their, their primary listing venue. Uh, lawyers and bankers I know are incredibly active um, and th- there is, of course, the uncertainty uh, about um social and political conditions here, but from a business perspective, uh, things seem to be moving along somewhat uh, un- unencumbered by a lot of uh, concerns that we had earlier in the year.
0: Right, so Daniel, let me push you a little further on this because I know you work with a lot of clients in right there in Hong Kong itself. What you're saying seems to confirm what Simon said, which is that Chinese businesses are taking advantage of Hong Kong, but will Hong Kongers want to stay under the circumstances that... Uh, the new security law has put in place, or will they be fleeing to other parts of East Asia?
2: Uh, well, I, I think that's still a mixed picture. Uh, so um, just anecdotally speaking, um, we have not seen the exodus of of Hong Kongers yet, although it is certainly a topic that comes up in, in many conversations. Um, it seems that uh, uh, the... Um, the most likely destination may be uh, the United Kingdom, uh, thanks to the, the BNO, the British National Overseas Passport, uh, and the policy that the, the government has um, opened up to provide a pathway to citizenship. Uh, a lot of people, are, at least uh, the, the BNO holders um, that I've spoken to, are seriously considering taking advantage of that. Um, but I, I mentioned earlier that I do have some, some statistics on uh, public sentiments here. My company conducted a poll of 1,000 people here in Hong Kong. Uh, that was roughly just to give you some... Uh, backgrounds, roughly uh, 53% female, 47% male. Uh, and most of these people were in their prime earning years, either starting their career or you know, some, some level of experience. Uh, about three quarters of them were between the ages of 25 and 54. We asked them how they feel about their long-term career prospects here in Hong Kong. 23% said that they are either good or quite good, and 45% said that they are either uh, very bad or quite bad. So certainly a, a net negative view when you're asking people how, how they feel about their own long-term prospects here. So that's the, the statistical evidence, and it somewhat contradicts what uh, my anecdotal evidence would suggest, but um, people are, are quite skeptical based on the, the data of their ability to, to pursue their long-term career prospects here in Hong Kong.
0: Right. I mean, Simon, does that open up opportunities for Singapore? I know you're joining us from Singapore. Do you see an influx of especially perhaps Western businesses, but maybe even Hong Kongers uh, coming to Singapore to do business there?
1: I think as far as Western businesses are concerned, there's no question there have been a couple of big name moves like Deutsche Bank is one that everyone's written about. Um, But... So so yes, I think unfortunately the less well-off Hong Kong citizens are the one demographic that really can't do very much about this. They have to just basically suck it and see. Um, And, and, you know, I've, I've been around long enough to have been here. When Hong Kong was handed back to the Chinese, you know, Prince Charles came out here in the Royal Yacht and so on and so forth, and there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth. And indeed, many multinational businesses, including several of my clients, moved their regional headquarters from Hong Kong to Singapore in the expectation that things would rapidly Um, go downhill in Hong Kong and none of that actually happened. In fact, good many of them actually then moved back. I think one way to think about this in terms of where businesses are, if you are a serious global player in any form of financial service, can you afford not to be in the financial center of the world's second or probably in due course first uh, um, size economy? Uh, Because that's the question. You're essentially saying, because you know, uh, um, Hong Kong will be to China what Frankfurt is to Germany. You know, um, mm. and uh, and and at the end of the day, uh, are you really, if you're a serious player, going to want to stand aloof from that? I don't think you are. And in fact, uh, um, you didn't ask this question, but I think one of the biggest challenges for businesses like global banks, who know they need to be in Hong Kong, they're going to be looking probably more to America than China. I don't think they're going to have any problem dealing with the requirement to self-censor that's the way china operates they don't want to haul people off to jail they just want you not to get involved in their politics that's all uh and bankers by and large are quite happy to do that they're going to be more worried that an aggressive american administration will decide that there need to be sanctions and that they cannot actually operate in hong kong and be in the rest of the world as well i think i think that to me my banker friends are more worried about that than they are about the the medium to long-term future of, of, of being in hong kong yeah
0: all right. Now, listening to the two of you, it almost sounds like instead of asking, you know, is the competition of tomorrow Hong Kong, Singapore, it almost sounds like I should be asking, is it Shanghai that should be worried because of the security law in Hong Kong? Because if this brings Hong Kong ever more firmly into the Chinese system, well, is it one country, one system, and Hong Kong is the center? Simon, you have any thoughts on that? Well, I,
1: you know, I, I, again, uh, an analogy might be the relationship of London with Europe in a post-Brexit Europe. At the end of the day, however much Europe may want to have its own financial ecosystem, the scale and experience that you have in London, whether it's legal, banking, experienced people at mid and low level, it just vastly dwarfs anywhere else in Europe. And trying to do that would be not just an incredibly difficult unde- endeavor, but probably rather foolish. The same thing would be true, uh, in fact, of Hong Kong. Um, And and, and partly the the Chinese, it's difficult to know whether they've done this deliberately, but they should have opened up their financial services center. You've written about this, Salvatore. They should have opened up their financial services to the world when they acceded to the World Trade Organization, but they didn't. They didn't meet their obligations. One consequence of that is that they could have had much more expertise in Shanghai and Beijing. They haven't got it. Because they didn't want foreign competition. You could say they're being very canny and they always counted on, in effect, ring fencing Hong Kong and bringing it into the fold. Or you could say they just lucked out. But that's essentially how things play out. Yep.
0: Uh, Daniel, you said you're seeing listings in Hong Kong from mainland companies. Are they choosing Hong Kong instead of Shanghai and Shenzhen? I mean, is that the shift that's really occurring
2: i don't know if that's a shift that's been the historical the, the historical play for, uh, for for mainland companies it really has really uh, always come down to a choice between either hong kong or the u.s uh the u.s typically has had one out on that now hong kong really has uh, become far more uh, attractive um but but certainly it remains hong kong remains an incredibly attractive place for companies from, from mainland China to, to hold their, um, their IPOs and to list. It is a, a far more accessible market for international investors, and there, therefore it, it affords mainland Chinese companies the opportunity to access the greater pools of international capital and, more importantly, institutional capital. Uh, so I, I completely agree with what, what Simon was saying, and, and, and I like the analogy between uh, London and the rest of the, the EU. Um, And I do think um, Hong Kong will maintain its financial strengths. Uh, I I do think it's important to to keep some things in perspective, which is, you know, from a financial markets perspective, China is structurally very different in terms of the uh, proportions of of, uh, retail versus institutional capital, uh, the forms of institutional capital and active management that are um, in in China. Uh, But also, uh, I, I just want to go back to... Um, some of the statistics that uh, I referred to earlier, when we asked people in Hong Kong what their view was was of Hong Kong's global competitiveness in certain industries, uh, in finance, uh, there was 44% of our survey respondents said Hong Kong is significantly better or somewhat better uh, positioned competitively uh, in the financial sector versus only 22% who who had uh, said it was... Uh, less well-positioned. Um, there were net negative findings that we had for for law, uh, which was surprising because this is a, a, there are a lot of lawyers in the city, um, but for some very important, uh, what we would call new economy sectors, so e-commerce, biotech, um, and fintech. These are all areas where there is a tremendous amount of, of innovation taking place in mainland China. And certainly uh, Hong Kong does not seem to, to be uh, keeping pace um, from that perspective. In e-commerce, for example, only 25% of our respondents said that Hong Kong was uh, globally competitive uh, versus 34% saying it was uh not competitive, uh, and in biotech, the numbers were even more. There was even greater disparity. Only 14% that Hong uh, said that Hong Kong was uh, competitive versus 52% saying it was not. So, uh, so certainly, it, it does seem to be a city where finance will continue to to thrive, at least in in the near term.
0: But Daniel, are we going to see a great replacement of expats like you, who maybe? Are less comfortable with the security law and the human rights situation, and see innovative mainland Chinese moving in to take your places in Hong Kong.
2: The latter is definitely going to happen. Um, there, there is an increasing number. Uh, it, it's that that uh, influx of of mainland Chinese, uh, very well educated, very fluent in English, uh, has slowed down unfortunately uh, because of coronavirus and just troubles across the border but that has been a years-long trend and once the borders up I expect it to to, to resume. Um, There's a cadre of uh, expats like me who do feel um, uncomfortable in, in the new conditions here and uh, are choosing to, to leave. Um, many going back uh, to, to their home countries. A- again, just because uh, you know, for, for all that Singapore wants to compete to be a, a rival to Hong Kong, it doesn't have the same benefits uh, and is certainly uh, very difficult for expats to find jobs there. Um, but you do have a, uh, a group of, of expats who want to, to hold on to Hong Kong uh, and, and want to be part of its continued uh, growth. They want to be part of that um, access to, to mainland China that Hong Kong can provide. So there, there will be a reserve of. of uh, I, I won't be terribly lonely.
0: <laughs> well, I hope not. So, Simon. Is Australia going to have any success in recruiting professionals from Hong Kong or across Asia to come work in Australia instead, to move their businesses here?
1: Well, you and I talked about this a little bit. You know, they're certainly putting their best foot forward. The the prime minister has appointed a special envoy who
0: right. I think
1: is still in Singapore because he can't actually get to Hong Kong. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we but we talked, uh, I think, a week ago, um, and he has a very strong mandate to find wealthy Hong Kong individuals and also China, Hong Kong domiciled businesses who are worried about the political implications of greater proximity to China and to encourage them to come to, 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 to Australia. I suspect they'll be kind of the same people that Boris Johnson wants to come to London uh, because, you know, we're talking about the, the top 3%, you know. Um, the, the, the real challenge for Hong Kong is what happens to everybody else yeah? um, and, and how our conditions going to change, you know. I have to say, I'm fairly positive about that. I don't think Hong Kong's materially changed for expats. That could be wrong. I mean, I haven't been there since February, obviously, for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but um, So you'd know better than me, Daniel, I guess.
0: Uh, uh, Daniel, I'm, I'm curious not just about expats, but also about those less well-off people in Hong Kong who may have been very active in the protests against the security law and the protests for Hong Kong autonomy and democracy, many of them now have a route to permanent residency in the United Kingdom and potential citizenship. Do you think they'll take it? I think a certain amount will. Again, uh, to Simon's point, I think that route
2: really favors those of, some means, some some financial means, who can afford to to relocate, and those that have some some marketable skills. Uh, I think broadly, there's a, a sense of resignation amongst people that uh, these are the conditions in which they're they're going to to live. Um, but uh, I, I think I, I, at this point. Um, based on people's intentions, uh, the UK seems to be the most likely uh, destination, although we, we've yet to see what the, the aggregate numbers will, uh, will show. For the average person here, um, I, I would say that uh, it, it, relocating will be challenging, uh, but some, some certainly will try.
0: Right. Now, who is a competitor in Asia to Hong Kong as a business hub. I mean, let's say that the tightening of the screws as China asserts its control in Hong Kong does drive out businesses, does drive out stock market listings, does corrupt the rule of law in Hong Kong to such an extent that businesses simply can't operate there, Western businesses at least. Where would they go? Is Tokyo competitive, Seoul, Taipei? singapore daniel what's where would where would you bet uh, where might your company move if you had to get out of hong kong
2: well i, I think one city to keep in mind uh, as a possible destination in addition to those you, you've mentioned is shanghai um there really? are yes yeah um it, at a certain point uh you know companies might say look we we uh, that there's actually greater certainty just moving to to mainland china setting up shop there Uh, and we've actually seen that happen with with one company uh, which is uh, vanguard the large uh, global asset management firm which has uh, shut down its business here and moved to uh, shanghai Uh, it wasn't a a result of the and they're they're not a client i can't speak for them i I can only tell you uh, what my uh, suppositions are i think it's just because they've said well uh, Mainland China is ultimately where we want to be, um, and uh, it, it's more advantageous for us to uh, to just be to locate our business in, in Shanghai um, and try to tap the market uh, from from a local uh, base, so to speak. Local in the sense that it's uh, you know within the same legal. Uh, financial infrastructure. Um, in terms of other markets that might uh, be competitive, uh, that's really hard to to say. Uh, Taipei is is a natural, um, but I think uh, it will be difficult to attract uh, talent there. Um, and we've already heard, anecdotally, again stories of people from Hong Kong moving to Taipei uh, and and finding it less. Um, less of a, sm- a, sm- a rougher transition than they would have expected. Uh, there are some language challenges. Cantonese is very different than Mandarin. Uh, the uh, uh, cost of living is lower, but also salaries are, are lower. Um, workplace standards are, are different. So um, I think talent is, is uh, what will, will be a challenge. Uh, I think maybe some businesses might try Singapore. Um, because that seems like uh, a natural place. It's in the same time zone, um, but it's still uh, not as advantageous as staying in in Hong Kong. Um, In Tokyo, uh, we've heard a lot about, uh, and some companies may try that, um, but uh, I've I've yet to see anyone or I've yet to hear anyone um, lay out a very convincing case for why that might be
0: right Simon any thoughts or any bets on where businesses might go or will we simply have companies going home Japanese companies going to Japan Singaporean ones going to Singapore etc
1: let me let me uh, again go back a little bit um, in historical terms when When China opened up and for the first time multinationals in the 1990s started putting substantial operations in China, including, for example, back office operations, which potentially exposed those multinationals to all kinds of issues, many companies, and it was very common to hear this at the time, talked about a China plus one policy, which is you've got to be in China, but there's a sufficiently high degree of risk of whatever nature that you're going to want to have redundancy in effect. Uh, in your Asia Pacific headquarters, so that you can do a lot of other things somewhere else. I think that's a useful model and an instructive model. Um, I think if you look at the candidates, uh, Japan, because of the political, uh, the stage of the political cycle in Japan, and because of the South China Sea issues and, and, and what is perceived as Chinese aggression, I make no observations on whether that's a correct perception, but it's hard to see, given the sort of rhetoric that's been flying backwards and forwards. Because a lot a lot of this does depend on the Chinese. The Chinese have to sanction, have to license a whole bunch of activities for a major financial center to operate in any material way in China, whether it's capital raising or, you know, the convertibility, the Rumi, whatever the hell it is. Um, I think that, to be honest, Taipei is totally off the list because, um, you know, Taipei is a thorn in the side of China. They're not going to want to reward Taipei unless there's a very material political gain. If Taipei, you know, I could just about see a more sympathetic pro-Chinese government in Taipei making that part of a, okay, we'll commit to some kind of formula around a sort of 50-year becoming part of China. I can see that, but I can't see anything like that happening now. And I, I have to come back to what I see in Singapore. What I see is I see businesses coming to Singapore. I see that Singapore has managed, although it's going to be challenging coming going forward, has managed to maintain... The perception of political neutrality it still enjoys very good relationships with the United States. Most global financial institutions of any size are represented here. Um, the rule of law, um, Chinese, 85% of the population are of Chinese origin, um, and it has a very warm relationship with China, going back right, right back to the days of Li Kuan Yew, when, when he actually helped China figure, figure partly figure out its relationship with the wider world, Then China can, was coming off having been very parochial and very enclosed. So um, I'm inclined to view Singapore as a very sensible bed. It is the same time zone, as Daniel said. It's also politically neutral, and I see less downside um, for for, for both America and China. Um, There are some big issues for Singapore. And the other issue, of course, you've got got a massive amount of expertise already here. Something that Singapore's policy is very smart. You know, if you talk to them, and I've tried to talk to them a lot, because I write articles about Singapore versus Hong Kong, it's a very common thing that journalists write about these days. They will not they they all say things like, "Well, you know, we value Hong Kong, we we support Hong Kong." Blah blah blah. I was quietly rubbing their hands every time an institution <laughs> announces that it's that it's moving to Hong Kong. I, I think Singapore—we're going to see a lot more um, growth in China-related activities in Singapore for for all of the above reasons. Yeah.
0: Now, a lot of our viewers, frankly, are going to be unhappy to hear the plain truths that both of you are telling us, that businesses may actually be quite happy to see the quashing of protests in Hong Kong and peace and order restored so they can simply get on with the business of making money. But I want to ask you, and I'll start with Simon and and then uh, go to Daniel, what happens if China brings Hong Kong into the Chinese internet firewall? I mean, what happens if Hong Kong really becomes part of China in every sense, meaning that, you know, you can't even use Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, uh, and who knows what other functionalities in Hong Kong. Will that change the calculus here? Simon? Well, it, people said
1: that about China. You know, when I first started, I mean, you know, I'm on the BBC a lot. When I first went to, to started going to China in the 90s, when, it, when internet was still dial-up, I could do reports from my hotel room. Uh, Now, about five years ago, even with a VPN, it became impossible to either listen to the uh, BBC or to listen to CNN or to, you know, um, that hasn't really stopped uh, inward investment in China. It hasn't really stopped economic activity. I mean, the notion that businesses, be they Western or anywhere else, you know, are, are, are operating according to a very narrowly defined set of frameworks which require certain levels of personal liberty that's belied by the relationships that the world's big biggest capitalist countries have had with all sorts of quite grubby regimes all over the world mm-hmm. for a hundred years so i so i you know our press which is broadly very left-wing in the in, in the west and certainly in australia likes to make a big meal out of this i, don't, I think businesses are going to quietly get on with it after all we are talking about an economy that will probably be the world's biggest economy within the next few decades. I know you and I uh, disagree on the precise timing of this, Salvatore. Um, You know, can you really afford not to be in that game? Um, I mean, I wouldn't have thought so, yeah.
0: Well, but Daniel, I mean, can you run a, you you run a corporate communications firm. Can you run a corporate communications firm or any communications firm if you can't have encrypted communications because the apps are not allowed in Hong Kong? I think yeah, to, to to Simon's points, so companies have been operating under those conditions in mainland China
2: for quite some time. Uh, I, in terms of you know, my my own business and other businesses here, I think that's learned to to adapt. I think it would be uh, very psychologically uh, discomforting if if that were to happen. Certainly, uh, I'm I'm not an avid uh, so- social media. Person, um, but I, I do think it would be uh, very psychologically disturbing for a lot of people to see uh, social media apps unavailable here, to see greater censorship of the media. Uh, for example, as, as Simon was saying, if you are in your hotel room in Shanghai and something controversial is is uh, displayed, then the screen goes to black. If that starts happening here in Hong Kong, uh, I, I think that would be a, a significant psychological jolt to a lot of people both uh expats and and locals who have uh, lived with these freedoms um but to simon's point i do think business marches on uh who's leading the business may change it may be more of the uh, mainland professionals that that come in and and, uh, start to become the, the local leaders of these businesses
0: right so i mean let me then just push a little on that if you were to sketch out you know, what's Hong Kong going to look like in ten years? Uh, do you think it's going to be, Daniel, very much what it is today, or you know, do you think major changes are on the horizon?
2: That's a difficult question. I do think major changes are on the horizon. I think they are inevitable, but it's hard to say exactly what they are. I think for in, in the near term, let's say the next uh, three to five years, maybe five to seven years. Um, conditions uh, broadly remain the same. I think possibly the cost of business goes up for, for some companies. Uh, they do have to institute more um, legal and compliance functions that has implications for uh, their IT systems, uh, has implications for just the, the cost of capital, getting money into and out of uh of, of hong kong that, that that might increase but i don't think anything dramatic happens in the near term that's that causes an, an exodus of either people or, or or capital and businesses um but uh, in 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 the long term um significant change is inevitable uh, whether that's in in 10 years or 20 years mm. it's probably a little bit uh, further along the her- The time horizon than ten years. If you're asking specifically, does Hong Kong uh, look in ten years the way it looks today? It probably resembles it, um, and 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 very much so. Uh, But there will be changes. It's just hard to see what they are. Hmm. Simon, do you concur?
1: Yeah. Look, um, I I'm I'm never. It's very easy to be afraid of China if you spend too much time reading the Western press. Uh, You know, China has an overwhelming interest overwhelming. What is China about? What has the change in China been about? It's been about emancipating, economically emancipating a huge chunk of humanity. They, Whilst they have certain views of how they've been dispossessed and disrespected in the past, which they're trying to address, they certainly do not want to be in any kind of outright um, adversarial situation with any, any Western countries. What they want is they want peaceable growth on their terms. And I think a lot of the political points that are being made around things like uh, social media and access to newspapers and all those kinds of things. You know, my view on all of that, I've been in Singapore for nearly 30 years. You could argue that I've been kind of I don't conditioned. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I don't see uh, the social media in the West as particularly useful in, the, in keeping people accurately informed about what's going on. Uh, I, I see it as being immensely partisan. And it's having a very clearly biased political agenda of its own, if you, look at, if you look at what's allowed and what's not allowed. I find that a lot more terrifying than I find yeah. the fact that businesses might have to slightly trim what they allow on their emails if they want to work in China, right? They can't say, President Xi needs to lose weight, and or they can't call him Winnie the Pooh. Apparently, that's, uh, apparently that's, uh, that's no longer allowed, <laughs> uh, although it's surprisingly
0: apt. Oops. Well, I, <laughs> for for all of us, uh, I have a question for Mark, which is if, if you know Hong Kong becomes the gateway for China to invest in the outside world. But what happens if its citizens want and expect more freedoms? Uh, will people just have to accept the quid pro quo offered by China? Behave yourself, and you can prosper. That's the story we've been told about the mainland for years. Is that now going to be the story? For Hong Kong. And Simon, if you want to give your thoughts on that, then, then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go to Daniel.
1: Yeah. Um, it's very odd that there's a strange perception that Hong Kong were under the English and everything was fine and dandy, and all of a sudden they're being oppressed. I actually got asked on the BBC a couple of months ago, you know, when Hong Kong had freedom, what was it like? And I said, well, what exactly was that? I mean, Hong Kong was wrested from the Chinese at the point of a gun when the British sank the entire Chinese Navy in less than two hours, enforced massive reparations on China, and compelled the Chinese to accept the forced addiction of huge chunks, tens of millions of people to opium in order to offset their balance of payments deficit on the purchase of tea. You know, that's the history of Hong Kong. Um, So the the Hong Kong people have never had freedom. They've had had the ability to earn money relatively unimpeded, but they've never been politically emancipated. Hong Kong up to and including Chris Patton, who's a lovely man uh, was ruled by a man who wore a hat with a feather in it and reported directly to the queen. You know, that's the history of Hong Kong. Uh, so the freedom never existed. I mean, there is a real issue, which is that if you look at the way that many people live in Hong Kong, cheap by jowl incredibly expensive property, you know, educational issues, health issues, there clearly is a, an emancipation question in the same way that that question would be interpreted in mainland China. And I'm not sure that the Chinese model isn't actually better at, re- at addressing that than, say, the U.S. model. Uh, you know, I think I think that I see that the Chinese could have a significant positive influence on Hong Kong um, if they start to take on those things, you know? Um, whether or not they will is, a, is another question, yeah.
0: Well, but you're suggesting that China might learn from Hong Kong, but it, it looks entirely the other way from where I'm sitting, that China's imposing its view on Hong Kong. Is that not the case?
1: I think, you know, I, I'm no, not known for my sympathetic views to the protests in Hong Kong, simply because I've been in this region for 30 years and I've traveled and worked in pretty well every major capital in the region. There is no question but that Hong Kong has always enjoyed a significant level of personal uh, and economic freedom. To claim that Hong Kong in any material way is oppressed, uh, even now, uh, is ludicrous when you compare it with the lives that people live in much of Asia. That's that's simply a fact uh, if you Mm. actually bother to go out and look. So, um, you know, are there questions? Yes, there are. Um, Are we looking at... We're looking at a China that's concerned that Hong Kong does not become a virus in the metaphorical sense, uh, which infects China because China is obsessed above all by continuity and by political by, by stability. Um, and, you know, that's a big worry. And that's why they're doing right. the things that they're
0: doing. Right now. Daniel, is Hong Kong being offered the same quid pro quo that has applied in China for 40 years? I, I
2: think it is, and and I don't think that's anything new.
0: I, I just think that it's become a, a more urgent
2: uh, question that people have to to grapple with. Are we comfortable with that? Uh, with with that quid pro quo? Um, I, I think. My sense is that most people are just putting off answering that question, and having to reckon with it right now, because on an everyday basis, very little has has changed, um, and, and certainly it's it's much easier for people to attribute some of the the hardships that Simon was enumerating, uh, you know, the cost of living here, difficult access to. Uh, good, good quality public education, um, and some of the other uh, economic hardships that, that people face here. I think it's easier to uh, chalk those up to to macroeconomic conditions or uh, the um, uh, administration here, uh, the, the administration of daily life in Hong Kong. Um, uh, it's cer- certainly, those those more pressing issues have existed for for some time. But I, I think what, what we have seen in some of the changes that have taken place is that uh, the question of whether people will accept that quick pro quo is becoming more urgent. Um, and that's, quite frankly, uh, what seems to be on the table right now from, from inland China.
0: Right. And Daniel, let me follow up. Zach says that his Hong Kong friends often say that Shanghai has been designated by the Chinese government as a replacement for Hong Kong. In the end, is this security law and what's going on in Hong Kong Really, just an effort by the Communist Party and the central government in China to promote Shanghai. Well,
2: it's hard for for me to start to try to read into the the, the minds of the um, technocrats in Beijing about uh, which which area they want to favor. What what I see when I look at the landscape, um, whether it's uh, Shanghai or Shenzhen or now the Greater Bay Area in, in southern China, um, I, I believe that the, the Chinese are, are, are trying to promote uh, various economic models within uh, the, the mainland system, and s- some of which this Greater Bay Area, which does include Hong Kong. So I, I, I'm not sure that it's designed to rival um, Hong Kong entirely or provide Provide a clear uh, alternative, um, but I just think that the the uh, Chinese government is following the same approach that they have in the past, which is let's try let's try various forms of economic experimentation. Some of which may pose uh, existential challenges to, to to Hong Kong. Some of which may provide a role for for Hong Kong. So um, I don't think it's as as cut and dry as the question makes it out today.
0: Now I have a question for both of you. Uh, Richard has kindly ask me to ask you if you have read a fantastic book called American Tian Sha, Chinese Money, American Power, and the End of History. (laughs) By yours truly, I didn't set this up, but I am curious if you have any thoughts on the American role in China and in Hong Kong.
1: You know I've read it, Pat Salvatore, because you sent me a copy. (laughs) Not only
0: only have I read it, but my 89-year-old mother has read
1: it. And in, in fact, uh, in fact, we should have invited her to this call because she has, she's very opinionated
0: on uh, on America and China. Uh, Daniel, any any thoughts on America, China?
2: Um, the uh, specifically the book or or the
0: relationship? Either way, either way, I, yes. Uh,
2: you know, I I, I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I I do have the book and and I and I have read it and and I thought it was uh, I thought it was a, a great read. Uh, the. The, the relationship, though, that I see between um, the United States and China, at least from a commercial perspective, is that companies still want to, to do business here. Simon was saying it is just too large to, to ignore. Um, you know, what's, what's been interesting is, you know, a, again, I, I may be coming at this from uh, very much a, a capital markets perspective, but you do hear people talking about uh, investment strategies that were in the past they would be Asia-Pacific ex Japan. Uh, now they are Asia-Pacific ex-China because China just dominates so much of the region economically. If you are allocating capital to this market, China is entirely it, it's, its own um, uh, uh, strategy uh, in in and of itself. Uh, I just think it's it's too too large of a market for for companies to ignore. Certainly, uh, that's what you know I see from from my clients, and that's what I see from uh, just my, my daily interaction with people. Is that the business communities will continue to find space within which they can um, continue to to work with each other, uh, and and hopefully um, you know, politics will, will interfere only at the margins.
0: Right now we. We have a a shout out to both of you from Andy, Tim, Christina, Zach, all complimenting you for your insights. So thank you, uh, Daniel, thank you, Simon. Uh, Daniel, we know that the US election is coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, We don't need to know who you plan to vote for, but what do you think the implications are for the current situation on human rights in Hong Kong?
2: Well, I will say in terms of I plan to, to vote for. I've already voted. I won't tell you for whom. I voted in. Um, uh, but may uh, your may your ballot be read. Yes. <laughs> let's let's, hope so. let's hope so. Um I to, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, I, I don't see very much changing, uh, almost in 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 any regard, uh, with, with the exception that I, I think. Um, you know, that there will be a certain perhaps a diplomatic normalization uh, if, if there is a Biden victory. Uh, I think that it's just a, um, that he's much more of a traditionalist from a, from many perspectives, certainly from a diplomatic perspective. Um, but I, I don't see dramatic changes um in in the way that the u.s approaches human rights um and i don't see dramatic changes in in economic policy except perhaps uh, a, a bit of a normalization in the way that uh, the u.s approaches its grievance with, uh, with china um, certainly no one i know is expecting things to tra- change dramatically really? um yeah uh it, what what Overwhelmingly, what people say is we just want, and this is uh, somewhat disappointing that we're talking about this with regard to the United States, is they just want a
0: quick, smooth
2: transition so that the world can get on with things.
0: Right. Simon, any thoughts on the U.S. election and implications for this situation?
2: There's never
1: been. If you look at the political situation in the U.S., it doesn't really matter which of the two main parties you're talking about. There's never really been a smooth and definable relationship with Asia. You know, when Obama talked about a pivot to Asia, You know, that was a massive insult to Asia. It was like, oh, goodness me, it's hurting me. Asia exists. What should I be doing about it? I mean, what that displayed to those of us who are here was just a massive parochialism. And, you know, Mm. I I think Trump is also clumsy, but in a different way. Um, I think the good news is that most people that have been here, and certainly most senior American businessmen that I know, and I know a lot, you know, being long in the tooth, I know people who run companies (laughs) and who speak Chinese and who live here. They basically separate the commercial relationships on which they depend from the political noise. And the Chinese, who, who 25 years ago got very upset at political rhetoric in the US, are now pretty sophisticated. And they now understand that there's an awful lot of, of, of argy-bargy in hot air. And at the end of the day, most things will continue in the same way. I personally think a second Trump term, uh, which of course we're about to um, enjoy, uh, Daniel, <laughs> uh, is, <laughs> is, is likely to see a bit of a slackening off because there's much less upside. Uh, for trump uh, in a second term when he can't get a third term uh, so you'll be looking for he, he'll be expect you can expect him to deliver rapprochement growth call out uh, diplomatic achievements um, and, uh, and i and I'm, i would i would in many ways prefer that to a new term with with a new party um, yeah
0: Daniel the coronavirus has been used as a tool, I think it's fair to say, by democracy activists in Hong Kong to try to put some distance between themselves and China. Do you think that strategy is likely to continue or is, is that are things going to start moving much more rapidly towards integration once the coronavirus pandemic has passed?
2: Um, I don't know to what extent it's been uh, so much of a, of a strategy for democracy uh, activists here. Um, but to the extent that they've tried to exploit coronavirus conditions, um, I, I, I think that that would be any effectiveness of that strategy would be quite ephemeral. Um, I, I think that's, uh, be, especially because China has been, um, from what we can tell, extremely successful in um, quelling its own coronavirus issues by various means. Um, and, you know the situation here in Hong Kong uh, from a coronavirus perspective is not dire um, you know, everyone is is anxious for, for the borders to open again um, and and so I think any effectiveness of, of that strategy is, is really has a, a very distinct time
0: horizon right Simon is is the coronavirus situation one of the factors that has been preventing The shift of individuals and businesses from Hong Kong to Singapore? Do you think that floodgates might open once the epidemic has passed?
1: Well, I think there are a lot of people like me who are going to be getting on airplanes. Um, I'm not going to be in so much of a hurry to see President Xi. I'm more interested in seeing my 90-year-old mum and my kids, both of whom are stuck (laughs) in the city of London. Um, But um, uh, what have we got, seven months, I guess? Um, I think the basic trajectory continues. I think the role of Hong Kong, and um, I'm not answering your question, but it's something I did want to add, and I know we're running out of time. If you look at the amendment to the, con- the Chinese constitution that was created when China opened up, it's amazing because the Chinese are very open about what they set out to do. What they set out to do was to invite Western expertise into China, to create overcapacity, and then to benefit from those capabilities, both infrastructural and capital investment and intellectual knowledge. Now, one industry where they haven't done that is financial services because they've been terrified. The clout of London and New York would essentially run away with financial services in China because financial services are incredibly clunky. know they're 50 years behind in insurance and assurance and pension funds and all those sorts of things. Hong Kong provides them with an ideal opportunity to essentially take from Hong Kong what they want and use it to incubate it Uh, in different parts of the economy in China in a way that they can manage and control. So yes, over time, a lot of the things that are going on in Hong Kong will go on in China. But I don't think Shanghai is going to become the Chinese financial center because why? At the end of the day, inevitably, China is going to absorb Hong Kong hook, line and sinker and Hong Kong has too much value and too much accumulated expertise for them to squander that. Why would they? Yeah.
0: We do have one question from Max about uh, Alan Tudge, our population minister and Australia's federal government's global business and talent attraction force. Uh, We have uh, we've already addressed this, but I (laughs) have to to bring come back to this question. Do you think Australia has any chance? We'll start with Simon. Any chance of leveraging the Hong Kong situation to its advantage at all? Or is this just a, you know, a non-issue for people in Asia? Is anyone thinking about Australia?
1: Sure. I mean, like, you know, lots of us like Australia. I mean, I, the, the, the question is, and I did say this to the gentleman uh, from Australia, maybe he's on the call, I don't know, is he? Um, and um, I said it would help if you weren't so ruthlessly demonizing Chinese uh, all over the media and politically in Australia, because these these two strategies run directly counter to one another. So the only way you're going to persuade honkies that australia is a good place for this to somehow differentiate the rhetoric about mainland china from the rhetoric about hong kong nice if you can do it but not easy i don't think
0: really so are people confusing that message because of course the message here in australia is is consistently chinese australians and chinese people are very welcome but the Communist Party of China is not is that message not getting out in Asia I
1: thought didn't you did it, um, I thought I read something about you know how the chinese were, were taking over the universities and using it to to spread dissension and to uh, recruit spies, and I don't know what i mean I, I one has to be careful how much one attaches to stuff one reads in the media, but certainly I've read a lot of negative rhetoric and certainly in New Zealand and Australia, discussions about whether the purchase of land and assets to buy or spy by Uh, Chinese should be limited and things like that. People notice those sorts of things, you know. And certainly in considering where I want to take my company and my wealth to, if I'm a wealthy Hong Kong Chinese, I might well consider going somewhere else, you know.
0: Daniel, can I, we're, we're just about running out of time. So can I ask a question that was specifically addressed to you from our viewer, Luke? He asks, as the U.S.-China rivalry rages on and looks more and more likely to be a long-term fixture of international affairs, what potential changes do you see to Hong Kong's role in relation to China? My view is, is that... There's, there will be even tighter
2: integration between Hong Kong and, and China. I think, quite quite frankly, the relationship with, um, with China is what gives Hong Kong its its strength and competitive advantages. Uh, so the, the local market seems to want to double down on, on that relationship and, and those um, those advantages, uh, you know. It again, it becomes a question of who's. It, this is in my, my view. It becomes a question of who's leading Hong Kong in that direction. Uh, is it increasingly um, uh, talent from mainland China that is coming here and taking uh, not just junior level positions but management level positions of, of uh, institutions here? Um, that 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 may be the case. Uh, as the putting this into the context of u.s china relations uh it, quite frankly it looks like like uh the u.s right now under the the current administration the state department is happy to put sanctions on uh hong kong um that could have a deleterious effect to the people it is purportedly acting in support of um, which is you know, the, the local hong kong community um it, it Quite frankly, Hong Kong may become uh, may, may endure some uh, cla- may, may endure some collateral damage, may become collateral damage uh, as part of uh, that, that trade war. Um, but I don't think that it, it poses an existential threat to, to Hong Kong at this point.
0: Right, right. Now, we're about to wrap up. I do have one final viewer question, and then I have a final question of my own. Final viewer question from Mark is, what would be your advice? And we'll start with Daniel, and then we can get to Simon. Daniel, what would be your advice to a potential expat? And we're talking here, a senior financial services guy with school-aged children, contemplating a move to Hong Kong. Do you think it's safe?
2: Uh, I'm actually trying to persuade uh, a colleague now to make just that uh, (laughs) (laughs) choice. Um, in in terms of uh, safety, yes, I, I do. I, I don't think for for the average uh, expat, um, you know, life life has become all that much more uh, politically fraught or, or legally fraught. Uh, let's say, um, quite frankly, some of the, the greatest challenges that existed before things like the national security law um, still exist, and that's you know finding a good place to put your kids, dealing with the cost of um, uh, living here um, but uh, the, the question is you know, what, what is the role for, um, for, for, for an expat in, in Hong Kong uh, because the roles for, for people like me are uh, diminishing quite frankly so right. uh, the bigger concern is for how long do people like me remain relevant as, as Hong Kong continues to change
0: really. Simon what are your thoughts uh, is Hong Kong still a good place for expats to go
1: well, I guess as, you know, as a governor, of a, a Catholic uh, boarding school here in Southeast Asia, perhaps I should argue very strongly uh, that you all join the church and come down here. Um, but, uh, but I won't do that because I know that's non-PC. All I would say is, look, the vast majority of people in Hong Kong are not rebelling against an oppressive China. You know, that whole thing was massively blown up. Of course, there are grievances. And of course, there's uncertainty over the future trajectory.
0: Well, we, we did see several million people marching. I mean, that's a substantial fraction of the population of Hong Kong.
1: Well, let's, let's talk about the numbers later, Salvador. I'm not sure whether, whether I agree with that. But at, at the end of the day, Hong Kong is stable. It will remain stable. It's overwhelmingly in the interests of China for it to continue to be stable. I have many expat friends who live there for years and who continue to live there with the very greatest of confidence. I would have no hesitation in saying, by all means, put down roots in Hong Kong, uh, educate your children in Hong Kong. There's, there's many, many good schools there. Um, I don't think it's in anyone's interest to burn down Hong Kong. Um, and in many ways, I, I worry more about political missteps by the US and China as we go through election cycles and things are ramped up on both sides. Now, particularly when I see aircraft carriers steaming up and down the South China Sea rather unnecessarily. So um, barring major accidents, and of course they may occur, I think Hong Kong is a very good bet,
0: yeah? Right. Now, I want to follow up with a question about China proper, the PRC, mainland China. I talked to the American consulate here in Sydney about the safety of traveling in China. They said that as far as they're aware, there are no sole U.S. citizens who have been unfairly imprisoned or or imprisoned without charges in China. Uh, No serious problem situations. However, we know there are two Canadian business people in prison under very harsh conditions with questionable charges against them. We've seen Australian journalists have to flee China in the middle of the night. Uh, People who are not Americans seem to me to face a lot more of a challenge in China. That is, China seems to be more afraid of retaliation from the United States, but it doesn't fear retaliation from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, European countries. Is it safe for non-Americans to do business in China? Simon?
1: Well, look, I've gone up to to China many times with a crew and wandered about filming stuff and talking about things and never had a problem in hotels, in companies, in the street. I think there are certain things that you can do and say, particularly if you use social media, that are going to bring you to the attention of the Chinese authorities, as there are in Singapore, um, as there are in, in, in much of the world. I think if what you're there for is primarily an economic relationship, then I think you should bear in mind that as a, goat, as a guest, you should behave like a guest. Uh, it is not an oppressive experience to go live in Shanghai or Tianjin or Beijing or anywhere in China. And I know I spent many months living in all of those places. Uh, so I think we should put aside this notion that everyone's being surveyed and is under an imminent danger of arrest, because that just isn't the reality for those of us that know China and have worked there.
0: But the Canadian business people in prison, they're just political pawns. They weren't doing anything untoward in China. Of
1: course, there's a lot going on over Huawei uh, as well um, over that. So I think that's a bit of a tangled web. Um I agree it's unfortunate, but I wouldn't make any massive inferences about the overall safety of China from that case.
0: Daniel, does it matter to you and the people you're recruiting, whether they're Americans or people from countries that perhaps can't defend their citizens quite as well?
2: I think it. I think it does. I think there are concerns. Um, I, I, I agree with Simon that there um, that the concerns may be overblown, but certainly it is something that people are, are thinking about, talking about um, uh, when when they are considering um, you know, travel to mainland China. But it's it's really hard to say right now because it, it hasn't been possible. It hasn't been possible for so long. Um, but um, it, it, it has been has been a topic of conversation earlier on when, when travel was possible. Uh, there were, there were a lot of concerns, uh, that people expressed again. Um, they may have been somewhat overblown. Um, as, as Simon was saying, these are just two incidences, but it's, um, certainly I I do think that there is reason to to be concerned about them. I don't want to make light of those, uh, those two Canadians who are, are still being held. Um, but I do think that's, uh, there, there are, um, uh, reasons to be reasons to be concerned, but I w- wouldn't let it hold me back from, from traveling.
0: Really. Well, Simon Littlewood, Daniel Del Rey, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you,
1: Salvatore. And nice to meet you, you Daniel. Yeah.
0: Like myself. Oh, our pleasure. You pleasure. Thank-, thank you. Thanks also to our viewers. I'm Salvatore Babonis, uh, talking to you from the Center for Independent Studies. For decades, the Center for Independent Studies has been a fiercely independent voice, working hard to deliver evidence-based policy. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel. Click the notification bell if you're watching on YouTube. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. So please check out the links on screen to see how you can get involved. Thanks for watching.